Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. But I do believe 
your lifestyle of forgiveness, where you give it, is very much what opens up the reciprocal exchange for you to be able to embrace it. Let me say it this way. I've never met somebody who forgives others really well and isn't able to forgive themselves. I've never met anybody who forgives others really, really well and and is walking around in some type of shame game because they don't they feel like they need to earn God's love. Why? Because you open up that exchange where it is absolutely reciprocal, and that's uh, that's the huge number. So Joseph in the this story, if you remember, um, uh, well, let's just read it. Let's Genesis fifty fifteen. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, "What if Joseph bears a grudge against us?" And pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus say, uh, you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And now please, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. And Joseph wept before them. Verse 18, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said, Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? What the question is, is am I God? Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, there's a lot to this. The first thing that we have to understand about this is the background of Joseph. This is towards the end of Joseph's story. In fact, this is at the end of the book of Genesis. And Joseph was the 11th of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was a dreamer and dreamed of greatness. He shared these dreams with his brothers, and because of this and Jacob's obvious favoritism, Joseph's brothers treated him bitterly. So much so that they concocted a plot to sell their brother into slavery. As you know, Joseph was sold and his brothers told Jacob, his father, that he had been killed. Joseph was then purchased by Potiphar in Egypt. Following this, when Joseph resists the advances of Potiphar's wife, she accuses him of sexual assault and he spends the next 13 years in prison. This is followed by an incredible turn of events in which Joseph is made the president of Egypt. Really giving cliff notes here, but at 15 years ago, thrown in a pit, sold to slavery, just when things are picking up, According to children's uh, Bible that I have, he learns out without his shirt on. She holds on to his shirt, and that was the evidence, and she makes pants. She's standing there holding it like this, and his shirt's out. And, and uh, that's how we know, uh, that's how they knew that what her story was, 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 you know, real, that he had done these things. And so they put him in jail for 13 years. But while he's in jail, prison, if you remember, God used him, he began to to um, 
interpret dreams. God put him in charge of the prison. Um, remember, he gave the, the incredible um, interpretation of the one that served Pharaoh that was going to die, the one that was the baker and, um, and the servant that brought the wine, and one that was going to be the sword. And through this one that he gave this message to, God uses him years, I, I don't know how long, later, later, God used him to tell Pharaoh about Joseph. So when Pharaoh starts having these wacky dreams, they, he said, hey, I remember this guy I was in prison with. He goes and gets Joseph, and it, it, um, Joseph is taken from prison, and he is elevated to his role as, and you could call it prime minister or president, but either way, he was ruling over Egypt. It's almost like in, in um, England right now, you've got a prime minister and you've got a king, but we all know the king really isn't the one who's doing any of the jurisdicting or the doesn't function in the um, legal aspects of ruling. It's the prime minister. Joseph became the prime minister. Pharaoh's kind of a figurehead. Because if you remember, as we study the history and religion or traditions like that, don't ask, um, what we actually find is that, that Pharaoh, they considered him to be a god. So, so that's why they always had somebody else that was the secretary that acted as the prime minister or head man because they considered him to be a god. He was a deity. So what, they, what happens is after this 13-year period, this incredible turn of events happens, after seven years of serving in this role, his brothers come to Egypt and he attempts to obtain food. There's a famine that has come. And Joseph um, forgives his brothers and, in fact, the entire family and moves them to Egypt. After 17 years, when Jacob dies, Joseph's family, his brothers, come before him and they are in fear that he's going to pay them back for their sins. Dad's out of the picture now. Now Joseph's going to get us. And let me just be, I mean, the story is so much more colorful than, I, than I'm being able to go into. But, but the thing that I think stands out to me the most in this is, so after all this time with Joseph and his family, they've been restored, they've been brought from Canaan, they've been brought from uh, the, the place where they didn't have enough, they've been brought to this land, they're, they're enjoying all of this. And in this moment, after years of having this wonderful relationship, as soon as Jacob dies, they go, we're in trouble. It's almost like the two kids that um, that there's, you know, you, the, the younger brother does something to the older brother and the older brother gets in trouble because mom is standing there. But all the time there's the younger brother that caused it to happen. And then as soon as mom leaves the room, the younger brother runs away because he knows the older brother's getting ready to whoop him. It's kind of like dad's gone now and it's going to get real. And the thing that's interesting is they go far enough that they come up with, they concoct a lie about this scenario. This whole business about your father told us, um, your father told us to tell you, verse 17, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. Joseph, uh, Jacob didn't say any of that stuff. They come up with this lie because that's how afraid they are. So this idea of forgiveness, Joseph, it so breaks him that he's weeping before him and he says, not only have I already forgiven you, 
going, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your children. I'm going to take care of everybody in your family. This time is the first instance ever of forgiveness in the Bible that's using the word of forgiveness. And this story is the perfect story for this because we're talking about somebody. It was their own brother who had really done nothing to them other than potentially be a little bit arrogant. Uh, potentially, he was a little too willing to share what God was going to call him to do and maybe rubbed it in their noses a little bit. But he didn't hurt them. He didn't harm them. They threw him in a pit and sold him to slavers. I've done a re- lot of really bad stuff to my siblings. They've never thrown me in a pit and sold me to slavers. Furthermore, he then, after he gets to Egypt, thinks like, hey, things are starting to look up. I can be this slave thing was okay, like I'm serving here in Potiphar's house. No, he gets to go to prison. So after all of this, they, his brothers come back, he forgives them, and now he's going to deal with it again. Payback in this story is the root of understanding forgiveness. And here's where we're going to go this morning. Payback is the way of the world under the sway of the devil. Payback. I would suggest that in some ways we're absolutely obsessed with it. We find it permeating our modern culture. Make no mistake, we are formed in payback. If you grow up in this time, you have been to some extent formed in payback culture. And before you think, no, 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 you know, I'm so above that. And before you turn your halo on to high beams, let's think about this. It's the theme of every Western movie I've ever seen. What happens? At the beginning of this Western, somebody does somebody wrong, and the entire movie is the guy in the white hat going to set everything right and to take out vengeance on this bad guy with the black hat. And we cheer it on like it is cathartic therapy. Rarely do you get a feeling out of a movie like you get when the good guy wins and the bad guy loses. really don't like movies where the bad guy wins and the good guy loses. I don't like it. I walk away, I'm like, no, the bad guy's got to lose. Like, the bad guy's got to go down. You know, you got movies like Shane, which most of you probably have no idea what that movie is. It's an old Western um, where at the end, you know, Shane dies. Um, you've got, it's, it, it is so rare that I've seen every John Wayne movie ever made. I owned at one point 300 of them. And he only dies in two westerns out of over 300. Two. Why? Because we like payback. Somebody did something and somebody's got to pay. Our whole judicial system is based on what? Payback. Somebody did something wrong. And what do we say when they're sentenced? They have to pay for their crimes. And while I'm not here in any way to, to get into the weeds about our judicial system, I do want to be really clear. We're not supposed to live in a payback mentality. 
It is part of us. We cheer for it. We rejoice in it. And we act like at the end when it happens, the bad guy had it coming. We feel like there's nobody in that moment closer to Jesus than the good guy who just put one right between the bad guy's eyes. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. That's what the rapture's going to feel like. And while we're on it, we then interpret this and apply this to how we read really, really deep, important stuff like the book of Revelation. So then when we think things like Armageddon, which just so that we're clear, is mentioned one time in the Bible. One time. So we think Armageddon is where all of the bad guys are going to gather, all the good guys are going to gather, Jesus is going to lead us, and he's going to murder three million people. Because he came as the Prince of Peace, but he's coming back as Dirty Harry. We've got a problem. We really have a problem. And that, let me just tell you, that idea, the same Jesus, do you realize that the basis of the cross was forgiveness? The basis of the cross was Jesus saying, I'm not going to pay back. The basis of the cross was every other Jewish deliverer that had risen up to that point was a murderer, and Jesus wasn't. I'm sorry, but it's just true. And I'm not, I'm not condemning, I'm not saying that there isn't war, and I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm just saying that Jesus came to change that. And Jesus came to say that we don't have to align to that empire and it absolutely messed with everybody, which is why when Jesus died on the cross, they thought, who's going to lead us now? They, they saw him as the, the liberator. They saw him as the George Washington, the guy that's going to lead us into victory and, and free us from tyranny. And Jesus said, no, the way I'm going to free you is I'm going to die because I'm not here to establish an earthly kingdom. So why do we then superimpose into the rest of his story or the finality of his story that he's going to get all the bad guys together and he's going to get us together and we're going to stand there and cheer him on while he cuts off everybody's heads? We've got a problem. And, and, and we read it into so many things. And then let me just tell you, this is something that is going to be standard equipment for us to say over and over again. Anything you believe about the nature of God that you don't find in the nature of Jesus, you should question. And he's so much better than you think. Let me ask you this. What if God chooses to forgive more people than you would like him to? Because we like to think that we're Nineveh in this story, where we get this awesome forgiveness, and God is so good to us, and he redeems us, his reckless love. What we have to remind ourselves is from where we're sitting, we're Jonah, not Nineveh. So why do we play the part of Jonah to the degree that we get mad at God when he chooses to forgive more? What if God's free freedom and God's deliverance and God's forgiveness is far more radical than we've given him credit for. 
Forgiveness is the idea that Jesus came to show. He literally came to demonstrate, and in my opinion, you do recognize that all the stuff in the Old Testament where God's correcting and dealing with people, Jesus came to demonstrate what God is really like. We talked a few weeks ago about how the nature of God, you've got the front, the face of God, and you've got the back of God. Sometimes we exist with a back of God theology, which it is Him, but it's just not as clear as it should be. And what happens is, as we allow Him to be closer and closer and closer, we see the face of God in the forgiveness of Jesus upon the cross, whereby He says, it is blatantly clear who the bad guys are in this, and I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to react. And within that, that's how we are called to live. Because once again, we're called to demonstrate the nature of Jesus. How in the world, being the most forgiving people on the planet, fell off of our radar as the nature of Jesus that we're to demonstrate, I don't know. I really don't know. This is why movies or TV shows that draw us into loving the bad guy are so rare. Every story needs a villain. And we find this in everything from an action movie to a WWF event. But forgiveness can break the cycle and give us a future. Without forgiveness, it is just the endless repetition of the same thing over and over and over again. At some point, if Joseph imprisons or executes his brothers, their children will grow up and find a way to take revenge. Then it will be turned again, followed by a back and forth of exacting revenge. Because payback won't stop until payback happens again. Do we realize that this incredible act of forgiveness that Joseph gave to his brothers is actually what gave us the rest of the Bible? Without this incredible act of forgiveness, we don't get out of Genesis. Without this incredible act of forgiveness, we never get Moses, we never get Elijah, we never get David, we never get Isaiah, or Jesus. Without Joseph's act of forgiveness, we don't get because of a family feud. Joseph's words to his brothers are awe-striking. This rings clearly with God's pattern for us. Look at verse 19. He says, Don't be afraid, for I'm not God. I'm not in God's place. Who am 
forgiven. What he's saying is, I'm going to bank on the goodness and mercy of God. And I'm going to let God judge. And if I'm going to emphasize an element of his nature, it's going to be how good he is, not how willing to judge he is. We must remember that forgiveness is not condoning a perpetrator's actions. It is simply saying, I will not seek revenge. Now, some, in some ways, it would be easy to remove ourselves from this and say, you know what, I don't think that. I've, like, I've never, you know, had somebody do me wrong and me go home and find my Glock. And like in the Westerns, you know, I ride off into the sunset to really, you know, set things right. Well, that's probably true. But I would, the simple question I would ask you is, do you keep score? for you. Yes. Of course I keep score. Of course I keep score. Keeping score is something as simple as when you do something for somebody else and they take advantage of you. And and you might just think something as simple as, well, you know, that's fine, but I'm not going to do it again. Keeping score can be something as simple as office politics where somebody rats you out to the boss or throws you under the bus and you think, that's fine. I'll remember that. Next time that meeting comes around, just see what you got coming. Payback and unforgiveness can be something as big as um, your spouse. This is a really, or in a family dynamic. We find this all the time, and this is to me absolutely disturbing. But how many times people are fighting for control in a relationship? And so in the midst of that, it's all about I'm going to do to you and you're going to do to me. And we're always trying to hold on to that trump card where we can win the argument. Well, I can, somebody's got to pay. You're going to pay for that. You did, you, I, you know that I really wanted this. In fact, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said they take this so far as if they ask their spouse where they want to eat dinner and their spouse suggests something that they know they don't really care for. They're fine. No, that's fine. We'll go there. You know, I don't like seafood. We'll eat it. We'll eat it and you'll like it. And then guess what they make for their spouse the next time they cook dinner? Something they hate. It's what people do. And I would suggest to you that maybe to not, not to that degree, but we all have lists, don't we? We have lists of the people who have wronged us. We have lists of the people who have taken advantage of us. We have lists of the people who have hurt us. We have lists of the people who have rejected us and who have, in some way, who have in some way given us something we didn't think we deserved. And what forgiveness is, is not saying, I'm going to walk hand in hand with this person, but what forgiveness absolutely is, is saying, I've got to bear my load. punishment. The first thing is that if we believe judgment is in order, who better suited to administrate it than God? I'll say that again. If you believe 
that judgment is in order, somebody who's done wrong, who's better suited to administrate that judgment than God? Or the institution he's put in place? Do you believe what the Bible says, that God can work through our leaders, our bosses, our pastors, our president, our whoever, pick somebody? If you believe that, then we have to believe that God is the best suited individual to address judgment. We must realize that his judgment is always to be the fruit of restoration. There is a tremendous liberty to say that in the end, there is a God in heaven that will do what's right. And I don't have to worry. This recognizes that forgiveness is not just an abdication of justice, but an acknowledgement that, excuse me, justice belongs to God. <clears throat> Some of you have heard, um, uh, maybe read, or probably, well, I think it's within everybody's ears lifetime, um, of the atrocities that occurred in South America between 1948 and 1994 during the apartheid. The apartheid was um, one of the most long-lasting and disgusting displays of prejudice that we've seen in modern life. From the time period of 1948 to 1994, there was such um, racial prejudice um, that it actually ran the governments, it ran everything that had power was run by primarily whites in South, Amer uh, South Africa. And they did, didn't, the, those that were on the other side of that didn't just include uh, uh, blacks, but it also included anybody else that just wasn't white. During the time of 1948 to 1994, I'd like to repeat, 1994, it was not uncommon if a black person sat in the wrong seat at a restaurant to be taken outside and hung in broad daylight. During that time period, in the 80s and 90s, there were such things as white restaurants, there were whites-only buses, there were whites-only hospitals, there were whites-only bridges, bridges. There were whites-only ambulances. You're in a horrific car accident, and you've got to wait for the black ambulance to come get you, even though the white ambulance is right next door. This was normal for them. And you might remember that this was a huge push throughout the world to set this right, to overcome apartheid. During this time period, the voice, the mouthpiece of the peaceful resistance was a man named Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela um, was um, much like Dr. Martin Luther King, peaceful in his protests and um, was imprisoned for it. He spent, in fact, um, a little over 20 years in prison. Um, in 1994, mid-90s, Nelson Mandela was not only liberated from prison, but in the overturning of apartheid, he was the first African, or excuse me, first black, he's not African American because he's not American. He's the first black 
South America to be elected president. Much like Joseph, he experienced from prison to president. When he was elected as president, he decided that he needed to take this to the next step because he understood that freedom for his country and the future of his country relied upon forgiveness. So he decided that he wanted to invite as his guest of honor to his inauguration a man named Desmond Tutu. Desmond Tutu is the man that was his, um, was the policeman that was in charge or the prison guard that was in charge of the area where Nelson Mandela was. Desmond Tutu, for um, for a long period of time, this, this man that Nelson Mandela decided to invite, oh, sorry, I hope I'm saying that right. Desmond Tutu is another character in the story. He's next, so you be patient. The prison guard, who I don't remember his name, um, Nelson Mandela invites him to the, um, to the inauguration as his guest of honor. His job in the prison was every day to, to take Nelson Mandela out of his cell and beat him. He would do this to all the prisoners. He would take them out of their cells and they would beat them for something or nothing. And Nelson Mandela decided as the day of his inauguration that what he wanted to do to set his country on the right track towards the future of freedom was that he wanted to invite this man to beat him every day for three years to be his guest of honor. And he made it very clear in his inauguration speech that he said, this man is not here today so that I can gloat of what's happened. This man is here today because we have no future without forgiveness. And in South Africa, unlike what happened in Germany, if you remember uh, in post-Nazi Germany, they had trials, the Nuremberg trials, where they would were trying people who committed these atrocities and these um, um, these you know heinous acts, and and either in many cases killing them or imprisoning them as as um, punishment. What they did, Nelson Mandela actually did in South Africa, is he said, "I don't want to do that." He said, "In fact, if you will come." to the church, they had churches that were designated, you'll come to the church and confess and repent, you'll receive full forgiveness and immunity for your crimes. So these men that had beaten and raped and killed for over 50 years were forgiven because there is no future without very easy to look on a, on, in our Bible and look at Joseph and think, that was a long time ago, and that's Bible trivia. It's real. It's real. And Nelson Mandela changed the future of that country, because he would have been well within his life, and I would have been in his cheering section, to lay to waste the perpetrator of those atrocities. I think anybody Anybody that hears that story, if it doesn't make you a little bit sick to think of what was done to him, I think we all would have agreed he was well within, they all were well within their right to imprison and to kill anybody who had done those things. 
teach a very convincing case for forgiveness. And while I can't go out myself with this stuff, who is on my list that has done anything in the face of God's judgment? Who is on my list that has done anything even remotely close to this? And I think as we see this, we have to understand that part of how we come to the Lord is by forgiveness. I really believe that. Because what trans what I don't I, I mean this with every ounce of rever- reverence, but you do realize Jesus wasn't the first person or the last person to be crucified. There was something about that act that not only because of the incredible nature that he was raised from the dead, we understand that. He was the spotless lamb, we understand that. But if Jesus on the cross had held out against us and forgave him, he wouldn't have been the spotless lamb that could have redeemed us in the first place. So Jesus, that final seal of saying, Father, forgive them, that thing changed everything for him. That was the open door to say there is another kingdom, there is another way, and we're invited to live in that way. And I don't want to be the one that goes to heaven and I could pray in every diversity of tongue and I could prophesy together and I could worship and I could do prophetic tongue and I could preach sermons and I could say in Jesus' name, Hebrew words, but I have listed people that I simply couldn't model what Jesus modeled on the cross. Because I promise you, you letting go of your list will do more for you and for them as you demonstrate that than any tongue you can ever Because while our, in our own uh, lifestyles, we can do things that demonstrate freedom and yet be absolutely imprisoned inside if we don't find ways to let it go. And I, I've said this before, but the way this happens, slowly, incrementally, and always closer to Jesus. There's something about unforgiveness that what happens is the more we don't forgive, the more we choose forgiveness, the walls close in of what we'll allow inside of us. And we become less and less willing to open our hearts to people and to exchange with people and to be real and to love and to show compassion. And so what happens is as we refuse forgiveness, our comfort zone gets smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that then later on in our life, we, we really are not only numb, but completely closed off to any type of relational compassion that we're supposed to be regulated and relational. I want to be able to look at people and say, Father, forgive them. And I know that that is part of the radical change. That is what the kingdom of God is trying to look like. The kingdom of God is not an event that we're waiting for. The kingdom of God is not a feeling. The kingdom of God is not when revival gets big enough. The kingdom of God coming is in every single occurrence where we demonstrate what Jesus demonstrated on the cross. You don't, when you set a new building, you don't drop a building from the sky. You build it brick by brick by brick. And you're building the kingdom brick by brick. session, but I invite you, spend some time in 
this faith. Search your heart. I've done a lot of, lot of stuff. I, here's a really fun one. Try this. Get alone in your car, in your room, wherever it is, wherever your space is. No sound, no music, no intercession from your lips, and ask him to search your heart. Come to Christ. There is power in that place. Sometimes we come before him and we open our heart, but then we let the worship music or the songs or any intercession song take us off stage. Sometimes he just wants us to be able to sit and feel him and listen to him and allow him to just reveal some intimacy to us. And do it as he says. And once again, I don't think that all of a sudden one day he's going to come in some supernatural spiritual, uh, uh, you know, dry erase eraser and just erase all of our stuff. But I do think piece by piece, incrementally, he's going to lead us. And we have to trust him. We have no future without him. We have to trust him. So, Father, we thank you and we love you. We thank you that you have demonstrated this for us. We thank you that you are the one who led the way. Father, that you, much like Jesus depicts to us in the story of the prodigal, that you forgive freely. And, Father, that you do that for us to demonstrate to us how we're to live. Help us, Father, to live beyond our lists. Help us, Father, to live beyond the cycle of revenge and payback and and holding on to things because we recognize that everything we hold on to, you can't hold on to. Everything that I hold and I won't let go of, you can't take hold of. And so, Father, help us to let go so that you can hold on to. Help us to let go of what we need to let go of so that we can hold on to us rightly as you desire to do. And help us to understand that part of the prophetic future of this house is going to be in very difficult um, um, and and hard-fought decisions and dedications to live a different lifestyle. We're not going to fall under the sway of the enemy, under the sway of the world, under the sway of any culture or what anybody else says is normal or acceptable. But, Father, we want to be in you. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless everybody. Have a great night. And we will see you on Sunday. Um, And just as a reminder, we're going to not... this Sunday, but the next Sunday, uh, Pastor Fabian and Kelly are going to be here with us, and they're filming, and so we're super excited to have them here, so I want to make sure everybody be here, because uh, I know they want to see you. I don't think Kelly's been here in, oh gosh, eight or ten years, maybe even. It's been a long time that the girls have never been here, so that's a big deal. They just waved off over to come and experience what the Lord's doing, and then I talked to Pastor Paul, um, and he and his entire church are coming in looks like the first weekend of November. So as soon as I have that date, I'll get some information and we'll plan for that. I know we'll probably do some special things. That's actually on my birthday weekend, uh, which is cool. Um, but they 
their church and their sacrifice that we want to be out of our own pockets and want to pay for this because what the Lord's doing there in you. So their offering, most of them in Southwest and elderly life with Social Security, we're talking fixed income, their children are going to use that to come here and for school services and stuff. You need to be willing to be generous. So, all right, God bless you. Love you guys. Have a great week and see you Sunday. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.